All right, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 12. Nehemiah 12, 27 through 47 this morning. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nedophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the Dungate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshalim, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah. And certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachar, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azrael, Malali, Galali, Mai, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both of the choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests Eliakim, Messiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elonai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Masai, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzi, Johanan, Melchijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezriah as their leader, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Thank you, Steve, for reading all those names. I will not be doing that. So you can rest assured when we go through these passages, I'm not going to be repeating those. I'm not as good as he is at that, as many probably already know. Anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and ask God that you would reveal to us what you want us to hear this morning, that you would speak directly to your children in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be wrapping up chapter 12 of Nehemiah this morning, and we'll find in the latter part of chapter 12 that this 
was a day Nehemiah and those in Jerusalem were looking forward to, hoped for, for a long time. This is the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. And so verse 27, And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing with cymbals, harps, and lyres. When did Nehemiah first dream of seeing Jerusalem's walls up again. And we're going to have to go really far back because it's all the way back in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And before we can be a part of any solution, we have to figure out what the problem is. So back in chapter 1, Nehemiah knew the wall of Jerusalem was broken down, but that wasn't the real issue. The real issue was what that broken wall symbolized. God's glory was to be believed to be within those walls. And so it was a symbolic blow to Jews throughout the world that Jerusalem is in shambles. So here enter Nehemiah, who sensed God lead him to rebuild the wall. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. And so this is when the work began. And we find in chapter 4, verse 10, that they overcame doubt, fear, skepticism. Chapter 4, verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And this skepticism is common when we are doing the work of God. Any of us who have been doing the work of God, we've felt this before. And sometimes it's within the church where people within the church are the ones who are skeptical and producing doubt and fear within the church. And ministry, ministry is often easy to start up. Because in the beginning, it's a lot of excitement and people are wanting to join in and they're kind of excited to get in. But after a while is when kind of that doubt and that fear and all those types of things start creeping in like disbelief. And that causes people to be skeptical about what's ahead. Where are we going? That people's strength is failing. That there's too much rubble. That what we originally set out to do won't work, so let's just forget about it. Let's give up on this. And perhaps there are some of you here this morning who feel like this. Maybe you feel like giving up or you feel really discouraged with what you are doing. That life is just not letting up and you're tired of it. There's just too much rubble around you to move around to get ahead. And it's not to say that you haven't been moving it because you have been moving this rubble. But it doesn't seem like you're making a lot of progress because the rubble just keeps on happening right in front of you. I want to encourage you to look to God, to look to his power, to look to his glory rather than the rubble that's right in front of you. To continue to make things better, to work on making things better and not worse on yourself, creating more rubble, but that you would focus on God and that that pile of rubble, if you don't make more of it, will be less. 
Now, sometimes that's the problem. It's that we are just creating more rubble. We were just creating it for ourselves. And you may be looking to God, but while you're looking to God, you're actually creating more of a mess. And a lot of people are in this situation where they're looking to God, they want to change, but you're still caught in your sinful ways of life, and so you're just creating more rubble, so you're not really creating some space. Sometimes the problem is you're not working to clear the rubble, or you're procrastinating, and and so you may be looking to God, but you're not actively doing something to get those rocks out of your life. And this is something we need to do is we need to look to God and we need to clear the rubble. We need to do both of those things. And we see that in the people here in Nehemiah. They look to God and they continue to work at clearing the rubble. And they face their opposition. You look back to Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 9 and it reads this. For they all wanted to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. So you see that they're looking to God, and at the same time, they are working to clear this rubble. When we are faced with fear, disbelief, opposition, it's really important to look to God and to clear the rubble and to face that opposition. And in order to face that opposition, you need to identify it. You need to know what it is, because without identifying it, we might fight the wrong battles. And this is something that Christians are really, really good at. We fight the wrong battles. We tend to pick the wrong fights. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Yet we see Christians fighting against what? Flesh and blood. We fight against flesh and blood. John chapter 8, verse 4, Jesus said, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And in that verse, Jesus addressed those who couldn't understand what he was saying. Those who could not bear to hear his words. Those who were not of God. And when we don't identify whom we are really fighting against, that's when we fight the wrong battles. But Nehemiah led the people of Jerusalem really well. And in chapter 6, verse 15, we read, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. How long did the Bay Bridge take? I mean, geez, this whole wall around the city got done in 52 days. I don't know what that was, like 52 months. 52 days? An entire city wall? This is incredible. Why? This is weird, isn't it? Why does it take six chapters before we reach the dedication of the wall? I mean, this was done six chapters ago. Why is this dedication so far out? Because you would think, you know, they overcame so much. 
dating back to Nehemiah being in Susa, where he prayed to God. He spoke to the king out of fear because he didn't know if the king was just going to kill him or what was going to happen. He arranged for all those materials, all those resources to make the trek to Jerusalem, including talking to the guy who was like the Lorax at the time, you know, for all the wood. And so he got that. And then he got a military escort, right? He got a military escort. And then he, when he got there, he had to clear all that rubble. And when he was there, he, was, he faced opposition from inside and outside of those walls. And then the wall was finished. 52 days, all that happened. You'd think that once that last brick was laid, party. Like, we're done, right? Party. But that's not the case. Like, what's going on here? What happened in chapter 7 through 12 that they're not just partying after the last brick is laid? Why all this stuff? Why all these chapters? What was so important for Nehemiah to record before dedicating the wall that was finished in a record time, 52 days? In chapter 7, verse 6, we're informed that there were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into the exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Then... We're given a list of these people who were once exiled from Jerusalem who returned. And then we get to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1, we read, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And so the people returned to God's word. He returned to the scriptures. The book of the law led them to a deeper study to spiritual disciplines such as fasting, the confession of their sins, the worship of God. Then you get to Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, read this. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. Now you skip down to verse 38, chapter 9. And there we find the people of Jerusalem recommitting themselves to God. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, our priests, followed by a list of their names in chapter 10. Then the city of Jerusalem was still this really large city that had rebuilt walls, but a really small population. And so this intentional repopulation of the city needed to happen, which is what we find in Nehemiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 2. Let's just read that. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. The rest of chapter 11 and the first part of chapter 12 is a list of these people who repopulated the city, who revitalized Jerusalem. Great leadership from Nehemiah. Because if he went from day 1 to day 52 when they laid that last brick of the wall and went directly to celebration, where would that have left Jerusalem if chapter 7 through 12 did not happen? It would be a humongous city with great walls, but nobody there. So what kind of party would that have been? 
I'm like, yay, 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 yay. It's, all right, let's go home. Like, we're done, right? It would be a stinky party, like not a good party. Not only this, but think about this. How spiritually dry the people would have been if they didn't go through that time of studying God's word, of confessing their sin, of worshiping God, of recommitting themselves to God. So that by the time we get to Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27, we have this repopulated, revitalized with a lot of people in Jerusalem. Not only that, they're spiritually revived. They're spiritually awakened. They're in tune with God. They are ready to be there. What Nehemiah did is brilliant. It's a brilliant thing. Because the mission wasn't simply just to rebuild the wall. You could have done that, but then it would be like a little small city, people not worshiping God, not committed to God. What good is that? What was the mission? It was to rebuild the hearts of God's people. That was the mission. So what are we building here? What are we building as a church? You know, we had the opportunity to purchase this campus last year, the parking lot, the community center, this building. We could have purchased it last year. But we as a leadership, we chose to invest into the hearts of people by investing more into our ministerial staff. And so that's when we brought in Pastor Steve. That's when we brought in Genoa and Sasha. That's when we brought in these people to help us. Now, it doesn't mean we didn't invest into this campus because these buildings, especially these old ones, they cost a lot to upkeep, let me tell you. But we're more concerned with people's hearts. We want to see that change. We're concerned about studying God's word. We're concerned about confessing our sins, worshiping God, continually recommitting ourselves to God and his purposes. From when Nehemiah found out that Jerusalem was in great trouble and shame in chapter 1 until the dedication of the wall in chapter 12, what we have recorded for us is God's faithfulness, His power, His provision. Nehemiah didn't congratulate himself. Have you noticed? He's like, hey, good job, man. Like, you did good. Nor did anybody in Jerusalem credit Nehemiah for all he's done, right? And people weren't like, yay, Nehemiah, good job, yay. They all recognized this is God. This was God. His faithfulness, his power, his provision. Now, imagine this group of people who went through so much to get to this point. The original residents who were still there, they were described as people who were in great trouble and shame. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. Then there was this group of exiles who returned from Jerusalem from the Babylonian captivity who were a group oppressed by Babylon. So this is Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 6. And then there was this group who didn't want to be there. They didn't want to leave their hometowns. They were casting lots, right? One out of ten had to involuntarily. They were required to uproot everything they knew. And they had to move into Jerusalem. They did not want to be there. Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1. These are the people that you have living in this city. Can you imagine the history of pain and suffering for these people? All gathered together in this holy city, Jerusalem. All that weight of 
pain and suffering and hurt because those are the groups of people that are in this city. To finally come to this place, sacred ground, where their ancestors experienced the presence of God and where those prophetic promises would continue to be fulfilled in them. So you can imagine, imagine their joy, their hope, their hearts, their minds, their souls, their spirit, filled with worship as they assemble together at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. Here's a question for us. Is our church that way? Because we have a lot of people who are hurting, a lot of people who have been in exile, a lot of people experiencing shame and hurt and all these things, a lot of people that are probably here that really don't want to be here. What have we provided for them? Is this a sanctuary for healing, for them to to worship people of God? So experiencing so many years of hurt and sorrow, now experiencing delight and joy and gladness and peace. You know, verse 27, it can be summarized as this. It's great worship. This is great worship where they celebrated the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing with cymbals, harps, and lyres. Can you imagine the scene? Imagine that. Just, you know, just take some time to picture that. Because some of us have been there where you've experienced this time of darkness and then you get to this place where God delivered you and how delighted and how joyful, how how celebratory that feeling is. Great worship. How else can this be described? Hop over to verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Great worship, great sacrifices, great joy. What's involved in great worship, great sacrifices, and great joy? We need to look at where we choose to invest our finances, our service, and our time. Now, verse 44 addresses finances. Verse 44, on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contribution, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who ministered. So the people, the people of God took responsibility to sacrificially and financially provide for the corporate worship of their faith community there and moving forward. And this was done systematically. It wasn't just some random act. You look at the first part of verse 44. They were appointed over storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes. The storerooms were built so that the contributions made of first fruits and tithes could be put in safekeeping for future gatherings and the work of the church. Back then it wasn't called the church, but essentially it's the church. We looked at first fruits and tithes a couple of weeks ago, and you can pull that up on iTunes if you missed that teaching. Suffice it to say, it is very important for the follower of God to give of their first fruits and their tithes towards the storerooms of the local community of faith, and in our context, the local church. And for those who consider this their church home, regeneration. Now, we have people in our church family who believe that their first fruits and their tithes are for them to decide where it is to be given. And so a couple of weeks ago, I challenged those who hold to that belief 
to show me where that practice is biblically because that practice is not a biblical practice. And I'm just being honest with you. The first fruits and tithes were not given to God's work, God's kingdom. Anything that you deemed was God's work or God's kingdom where the individual giver decides that some goes here, some goes there, some goes over here, and whatever is left, maybe I'll give that to the local church. That is not biblical. The first fruits and tithes from Old Testament followers of God throughout church history until recent history had a biblical understanding that the first fruits and tithes were given to God's people for God's work to the local faith community. In our context, it's our church, the local church. And there are people who believe I'm supporting missionaries, I'm supporting parachurch ministry, or any other great work or cause, whether it's what happened in Nepal, or whatever thing that you're wanting to support. And that is part of their tithe. That that is part of their first roots. But they're neglecting the local church, or at least making the local church secondary to the giving of the gifts of tithes, and this is not a biblical view of the gift of tithe. It's encouraged by us that you give to missionaries. We encourage that. We encourage giving to parachurch ministries or any other great works, but not at the neglect of the local church. That giving is to be in addition to tithes. Now, we as a church, Regeneration, we strongly support the financial giving to missionaries, parachurch ministries, and whatever it may be. We give at least 10% of everything we receive to missionaries and parachurch ministries, at least. And I shared with you a couple of weeks ago that this is really uncomfortable for me to preach and teach about because I don't want to misrepresent God, the Bible, the church, or even myself. But this topic of money is shared about a lot in the Bible, and it's something that many people struggle with handling, which is why we're offering that Financial Peace University class. Now, for those of us who financially support other works in addition to supporting the local church, here's a principle that the Apostle Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. You notice this. This is in addition to the tithe. In no way did Paul instruct the Corinthians to give this in lieu of the tithe. Paul was a former member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee. He knew the instructions of the tithe very well, the giving, the collection for the saints, missionaries, those doing ministry, including Paul himself, was collected in this systematic, methodical way. It wasn't like Paul just showed up into town, and so then the people there were like, hey, we're going to have a special offering today. Uh, the Apostle Paul is with us, and so we need to support his ministry, so we're going to take a special offering. And it wasn't like they were having a pass-the-bucket moment, you know, like, oh, so if you feel led, you know, support the uh, Apostle Paul, and here, support this. This is not how it was done. It was systematically collected on the first day of every week so that when people came by, whether it be Paul or anybody else, a missionary or any other work, they had funds available to support them but not at the neglect or the substitute giving to the local church. This is something that I need to applaud our missions and support outreach team for. 
because we budget an amount set for the giving away. But then we have this kind of uh, account that is like a true up account to where we kind of under budget it so that we have this money left over so that when we have works that come through that we feel we want to support, it's there. It's the systematic approach to saving for this thing. We're not going to be like special offering, pass the bucket. That's just not the way we do things. And this giving, whether it was in Nehemiah's time or Paul's time, was done in a cheerful way. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So if you are reluctant or if you feel under compulsion or you're just not cheerful in giving, keep it. Just keep it or take me out to lunch, either one. But, you know, you can do whatever you want. You know, you, but don't give it to the church. I mean, you can take me out to lunch. Because it's this. Remember how the wall was not a wall matter? This is not a money matter. This is a heart matter. This is a heart matter. This is not about dollars and cents. It's deeper than that. And if you look deeper, what does that uncover? Maybe things like this. Pride, lack of faith self-righteousness because you're thinking this is not worth as much as this self-importance and over-controlling nature something that will reveal where your heart really is and how much giving tithes in a biblical way will help you confront those deeper-seated issues here's a quote from the stewardship of money by author fred mitchell is published by intervarsity fellowship the world asks how much we own. Christ asks how we use it. The world thinks more of getting. Christ thinks more of giving. The world asks what we give. Christ asks how we give. The former thinks of the amount. The latter, the motive. Men ask how much we give. The Bible asks how much we keep. To the unconverted, money is a means of gratification. To the converted, a means of grace. To the one, an opportunity of comfort. To the other, an opportunity of consecration. Great worship, great sacrifice, great joy. All of it linked together. All of these things linked together. See, the priorities change in regards to the giving of finances, service, and time when you can't have all those things linked together. And how did those priorities change? It goes back to chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. How did they change? What caused them to change? It was the word of God. They devoted themselves to follow God and to follow his word. When they found that they weren't following God's word, they changed to follow God's word. They repented. Their priorities changed. Their lives changed. Their preferences changed. And when it came to the time of the dedication of the wall, chapter 12, verse 27, this time of great worship, great sacrifice, great joy, they were all present and all linked together of them there. How many of us come to church in anticipation like that? Great worship, great sacrifice, great joy. Where we come together and our lives are changed and our priorities are changed because we've met God in spirit and we've met God in his word. 
Now look at how they gathered in worship. Now, forgive me for skipping a bunch of these verses. We're running short on time, and also I don't like pronouncing them. Verse 28. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of that. Then, verse 31. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall of the dung gate. Skip down to 35. And certain of the priests, sons with trumpets. This is going to be loud worship, right? Trumpets. I mean, this is not clarinets or like recorders. Trumpets. 38. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall. 40. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests, Eliakim, Maasiah, Minimi, uh, Micaiah, Eliah. Um, what I really wanted to point out was trumpets at the end of that. Right? Again, loud, right? 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children are also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. Do you get the picture? How many times was singing in there? How many times was trumpets in there? How many times choir in there? How many times all this stuff? Do you get that picture? This is an entire city on the move to worship God. Imagine this in today's context. Imagine Oakland mobilizing to its borders to worship God together. Awesome! Right? You guys go up to the Oakland Hills. You guys go down to the shore in the bay. And we're going to sing like the accordion going on, right? And we're going to do this thing. Forget Funk Town. This is a Funk City. And we're going to do this. For those of you who don't know, this neighborhood is called Funk Town. Okay? So just letting you know. Great worship, great sacrifice, great joy, all linked together. When's the last time you belted out in worship? You just let it out. I know some of us are more reserved. I know some of us are more contemplative. I know. I, I, know. I get it. I'm one of you. I, I get it. I'm the same. I, I get it. You're more like the crowds at the golf tournaments, right? Like, oh, good shot. But here's something about those golf guys. They can get into it. I don't know if you've noticed. That big shot, they get crazy sometimes. You know when Tiger just, this is like a long time ago, Tiger's like no longer, Tiger's more like meowing or something, but you, you get it though, the big shot, man, like, and then the crowd all jumps up and they're all crazy. Have you seen that in a golf tournament? They're not always. So when's the last time you did the crazy thing? You jumped up like, oh, what a shot, like, oh, that was crazy. Like these folks in Nehemiah's time did. God is the source of our great worship, of our great sacrifice, of our great joy. And the church is a wonderful place to practice all three of these things. How many times have you walked into the church and you didn't experience great worship? I'm not saying this church because Jane does an awesome job. I'm just saying you've gone into a church and you didn't experience. You're like, what in the world is this? Right? This is like boring, like whatever. And you've hung out a bit and you didn't notice great sacrifice at the church. And again, I'm not saying this church because a lot of you give sacrificially, but you've gone into church and you just kind of got that sense like there's no missions spoken of. There's no partnerships with the community and who they give to. Like everything's kind of insular and everything's about the church. Like where's the sacrifice? 
But this third one, joy, this one's the most puzzling one to me, seriously, because when you don't see this in the church, then what in the world is going on? I get the other stuff. Maybe you don't have someone that's able to lead people in worship in a way that it's good. Maybe you're in just such a poverty-stricken area that you do make great sacrifices, but it's just not as noticeable. But this part, like, you're a child of God. This one, everyone should have, right? So the thing is, when you walk in the door, what you really need to do is you need to tell your face. Does you have some joy in your face, man? Come on. Like, what's going on? You're walking in here all grumpy and stuff. Get... What's going on? Now regarding joy, look at that last phrase in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And so you enter into some churches and it's the same face as you find people have in I-80 during rush hour. Like it's the same face. You know that face. You're going, you're just kind of going... Not joyful. And those people have reason to be. I get it. They have reason to not be joyful. But what about us? Why us? We have reason to be joyful. Yet some of you look like you're stuck in traffic on the Bay Bridge toll booth without fast track. And you know how that is. You're in the cash line. You're just like, like all these people just zooming by and I'm just stuck here. Like you're, no joy. And when we're not joyful, it doesn't translate into great worship. It's hard. And it doesn't translate into great sacrifice because it's hard to give cheerfully when you have grumpy Smurfs sitting next to you in worship. I mean, this doesn't work. So you see how these things kind of all link together? Great worship, great sacrifice, great joy. And we're not talking about being fake either. I mean, we value realism here right we value authenticity here so be real we're known for a church that is real and so if you're going through tough times let us walk with you through it to gently and to at appropriate times remind those who are hurting that the joy of the lord is our strength that in the middle of the pain and the suffering that joy can still be found because jesus presence is still with us so you don't have to be fake about it you don't have to be fake about it. Hopefully, we're the same people whether we're at church or we're at home. right? Because I have met those people, like, they're fighting on their way to church, you know, the husband and wife, they're fighting, they're telling the kids, whatever, and then they get out of the church and they end up, hi, hi, how are you? How is everything? Oh, it's good, it's good, it's really good. Faker! Stop! But hopefully that joy is still in your heart no matter what the circumstances are. Let's close with looking at the last sentence in chapter 12, verse 43. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Do we as a church give the far-reaching impression that we're full of joy? Does our neighborhood know that this is us? That we're not screaming in terror and frustration and anger and all this kind of stuff. But that this is a roar of celebration coming out of here. Great joy. You guys know how this is. Because we just had this two months ago. Right? Two months ago, the Warriors had that championship parade. You know? And the main stage was three blocks away. We actually charged people to park in our parking lot. So thank you. And we gave all that money away. We didn't keep a dime. 
So we gave it all away to worthy causes, okay? So it's not like, oh yeah, let's go sushi, you know, whatever. <laughs> but the main stage is right there, Henry Kaiser Convention Center, right? It's right there, and this lake, it's kind of like, it shoots up the sound, all up into the hills. One million people show up to that celebration. One million. And they're out there singing too legit to quit. Right? They're doing all that stuff. And it's just crazy. It's just reverberating. It's all the... And if you were there, or if you just even saw it from television, you can imagine the celebration in Jerusalem at the dedication of that wall. It was crazy. It was crazy. And sometimes people are drawn into church because of the great worship, because I've had that happen. Like people just hear the music, hey, what's that? And I've met them. Sometimes it's because they've experienced great sacrifice because of what the church has done for the community. So we've given to people or whatever, and they've come and said, thank you. Thank you for partnering with us. I've done that. You know what I'm really hoping for? It's for people to come in, to be drawn in because of our great joy. I haven't met someone like that yet who's just like, man, I don't get it. The Oscar Grant shooting just happened, and yet you guys, I don't get how you guys are able to kind of move forward with those things, yet still addressing the injustice, still addressing the needs of the community, still addressing, it's not to be fake and pretend like, oh, we got it all together, and not, it's to empathize and to serve and to do all those things as we are attempting to do when we have that faith justice talk with Ben McBride, and I invite all of you to be part of that but that they notice the joy even in the midst of all the sorrow and the hurt and the pain of the community that we still have a joy. I'd love to draw those people in because of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would empower us with these three things, Lord, great worship, great sacrifice, and great joy, realizing, Lord, that it's all you. It was all your provision, it was all your power, it was all your doing. And so, Lord, would you have us to be humble servants of yours, just as Nehemiah was, who never took credit for himself, and we also noticed that the people didn't credit him either. But it's you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.